Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Some people still claim that religion is unscientific, yet modern scientific inquiry continues to result in conversions from atheism to belief in a divine creator. The great father Robert Spitzer is here to tell us about scientists who became believers. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host, and it is my privilege to welcome Father Robert Spitzer to talk about scientists who became believers. Father Robert Spitzer, SJ, PhD, is the founder and president of the Spitzer Center for Visionary Leadership and co-founder and president of the Magis Center, a fantastic resource for homeschooling families that uses science and philosophy to prove the realities of God and the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. It's so wonderful. A scholar, teacher, and seasoned leader, Father Spitzer is preeminently a theologian and philosopher. His other fields of expertise, however, include management, science, finance, ethics, and physics. He's the author of many best-selling Catholic books and has long been a popular EWTN host and is currently appearing weekly with Doug Keck in Father Spitzer's Universe. You can write into that show, by the way, and get your questions answered. I have two links in the show notes, the Spitzer Center for Visionary Leadership and the Magis Center. Father Spitzer, it is just a bucket list kind of dream of mine to, to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a real honor to be here with you too, Lisa. Oh, thank you so much. I'm curious what started all of this. You've been such a powerhouse in this intersection of faith and science. What awakened you to those important connections? Well, it actually goes all the way back to my high school days when I needed some evidence for God. Um, because, you know, I, I, I did not go to a Catholic high school. I did go to a Catholic university, thank goodness, because um, if it had not been for that, um, I'm not sure that I'd have the, the Roman collar on me right now, but I desperately wanted some evidence uh, uh, for God, and I was kind of looking around, and 
Uh, my priests uh, at the parish were the best guys in the world, but didn't know anything about that subject. And then um, I also, you know, my dear mother was a wonderful person and a daily communicant Catholic, um, but uh, she didn't much care about proofs and things like that. She basically say, well, you just hold a baby and, <clears throat> you know, then uh, you'll know right away it's a miracle and therefore God exists. And I, Sort of, I was holding the baby, and I just said, "Mom, is is not doing it for me." So, um, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, basically, I, I really was in a search mode, and I was very lucky uh, in my early years of college. Uh, um, one fellow who was a, a science person uh, uh, let me know about the uh, singularity equations and the relevance that that might have for um, the beginning of of the universe um, from uh, uh, the vantage point of physics, uh, the singularity equations. And so that <laughs> I couldn't believe, you know, wow. Um, wow. Uh, this is uh, something of a real, uh, um, you know, I mean, a substance, you know, a scientific substance. So I was very uh, impressed with that. And then truly I was kind of walking down a, a corridor and uh, at uh, good old Gonzaga University, and uh, as I was uh, zooming past a, uh, a classroom, I heard somebody, a professor saying, proofs for the existence of God. You know, you know I stopped <laughs> the corner. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So I, you know, I slipped into the, cl- in the classroom. I literally wow. went back in the class. I, I got to listen to this guy. So... Uh, <sighs> I'm listening away. I mean, pure Holy Spirit, obviously. I mean, oh, the, yeah. the timing was so perfect. But anyway, the long and short of it is I'm listening to this guy, and I finally, at the end of the class, I come up and I go, I don't think he can prove the existence of God. He goes, oh, yes, I can. And uh, I said, well, well, finish up the proof. And he goes, oh, I know very well you're not in this class. He says, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, I thought I got away with it. But anyway, the long and short of it is that uh, uh, I did, you know, he told me, ah, you come back and take the whole class and I'll do it for you. So I, I did. I <sighs> back, I took this whole metaphysics class. I was so interested, you know, and I was interested in a lot more. And that metaphysics class was a real turn on for me. So anyway, um, uh, you know, that got me started. And then, you know, after that, you know, I was interested in both and, you know, kind of philosophical proofs of God, logical proofs of God, as well as, uh, you know, in the scientific evidence for God. And so um, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, the two things came together. And as they did, you know, I began to hear about, oh, you know, this goes back to St. Thomas Aquinas. Who? You know, because wow. I, I didn't go to a Catholic school. So I I didn't, you know, even know there were there were proofs from St. Thomas. And then I didn't even know there were modern renditions of those proofs. I, I knew the proof, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, we learned in our metaphysics class. And I knew that it came from uh, Thomas Aquinas. But then I began to actually study these things in earnest. Then I saw some, you know, contemporary proofs for God's existence, which I found very, very uh, persuasive. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I, you know, the, um, as I say, the, uh, the, the car get, got put into gear. And uh, one day I was passing a Jesuit by in, uh, in the field. He was my uh, a professor in uh, literature and uh, poetry. And, uh, but he, he was, you know, just a very bright man, uh, Father Dave Lee. 
And uh, he just said, oh, you're going to go to those Lonergan lectures? And I said, Lonergan who? You know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, he goes, you know, very famous philosopher, Bernard Lonergan. I said, well, I I wasn't planning on going. When when are they going to be? Oh, they're they're tonight through whatever it was, Friday night. So I said, wow. And uh, so I said, uh, got any recommendations of a book he wrote? And he goes, yeah, uh, Insight, The Theory of Human Understanding. So I pick up that book, and, of course, I page uh, through the table of contents, chapter 19, The Affirmation of God, The Proof for God's Existence. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, <laughs> so of course, I got uh, very interested there, you know, a very contemporary person and, you know, brilliant guy. I, I mean, the, the, the lecture was on the functional specialties, but, uh, I mean, I got keyed into this uh, real genius uh, uh, who, uh, you know, he's a philosophical genius, with a, but very well acquainted with physics and science. Um, and uh, the book is full of it. Uh, Insight is full of it, uh, the physics. And so, I, uh, wow. you know, that just started the whole thing. And as I say, the rest is history. I, I, I really, when I did my Ph.D. work, I uh, very much wanted um you know, to to do something at the intersection of philosophy and science. And, of course, time theory was that. Um, and so I decided to do really um, um, uh, a dissertation on the ontology of real time. And um, once that uh, dissertation was done, um, you know, I, uh, I, I mean, I felt, you know, right at, you know, between relativity theory and, you know, well, what is time that undergirds you know, relativity theory, but not just relativity theory, but simple things like, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth, uh, you know, alive and Queen Elizabeth dead. You're going to have to have some non-contemporaneous continuum that separates those two moments. Otherwise, Queen Elizabeth would be alive and dead at the same time. Mm. And that, of course, uh, cannot be. That's a contradiction. So um, I thought, well, there has to be some non-contemporaneous separation. Time must, in some sense, be real. And uh, just uh, looking at how would you hold real time together. Um, and I became a, a real fan of Bergson, Henri Bergson, uh, who postulated that the only way you can have a non-contemporaneous continuum or earlier is held together with later such that you could have a real present moment uh, that had temporal duration in it, uh, maybe even 10 to the minus 40 second seconds, which is the Planck interval, uh, you know, that, um, you know, um, that that would have to be done by some kind of mind or elementary consciousness, he called it, or elementary memory, he called it in another book. But the uh, the point was, without that kind of transcendental mentative, uh, you know, dimension that could hold together the earlier and the later, um, you couldn't have time. But what what is a <laughs> transcendent dimension that can hold all of time together, uh, you know, in the non-contemporaneous continuum? Well, well, gee, that would be God, and you know, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't uh, lose the implications there. So I was very uh, much, uh, uh, you know, again, you know, I saw, gosh, this is a dimension that nobody knows about, yet it is so persuasive. And then, um, like I said, I I, I started teaching, um, you know, for we have a in the Jesuits we have a a time called Regency when you actually do student teaching. I did my student teaching at uh, Seattle University and I could tell right away, you know, they needed 
this evidence for God from physics, this evidence for God from philosophy. They needed to bring together the philosophical and uh, the scientific uh, dimensions. And so, uh, um, you know, my classes uh, were always oversold, always. Uh, not because of me, because of the topic. Everybody wanted to know. And so by the time, you know, I became president of Gonzaga, I kept teaching this course. And I, I you know, you could get easily 100 kids in, in a course where you'd actually have to, you know, get some. Uh, I had to get three of my late uh, professor colleagues uh, to teach seminars, you know, because, uh, you know, I didn't want to turn anybody away from the course. You know, wanted mm. to be so anyway, that's, uh, you know, to make a long story short, that's how it all kind of came you know, up and I've ever since been, you know, more than willing to um, provide as much evidence as I can give people from both science and uh, philosophy and their intersection for God. How exciting. I mean, it's just so, uh, there are actually still Christians and Catholics out there who think that religion and science are somehow opposed to each other. But if we believe that a creator is responsible for all of us, then science belongs to God. And so yeah. it must be singing his praises as we discover oh, it more uh, and more. Absolutely. The heavens proclaim <laughs> the glory of God. And that means the scientific description and explanation of the heavens as well. And so, uh, yeah, there's no, absolutely uh, no dichotomy between them. And you know what St. Thomas Aquinas said, you know, the faith and and reason cannot uh, be distinct from one another. Uh, fundamentally, at the end of the day, they have to agree because they come from the same source. And um, uh, summa contra gentila is there. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, nothing uh. could be closer to the truth. Oh, boy. I wish we could just do your whole seminar. But um, why don't you step us into our topic today, which is scientists who have become believers. What are some of your favorite examples? Well, you know, Sir Fred Hoyle is probably the most famous example, um, you know, because uh, uh, he was the atheistic gadfly in the physics community for the longest time. Uh, you know, he's one of the um, you know, formulators of stellar nucleosynthesis and a variety of other very, very important um, uh, theories. So he is an important scientist who just happened to be, as I said, the atheistic gadfly for decades uh, in, in the scientific community. In fact, he was the one who renamed, you know, the cosmic beginning. He renamed it, oh, the Big Bang, you know, because <laughs> he wanted to be very sarcastic about it and so forth. But the long and short of it is one day, um, you know, uh, this, this is an area called fine-tuning coincidences. Um, you know, his partner, William Fowler, uh, you know, came to him and he said, you know, Fred, uh, uh, do you know, um, uh, you know, what the, uh, the odds, the probabilities of having an abundance of carbon by pure chance uh, uh, coming about uh, in the universe, and Fred uh, says, "No." And he says, "Well, I've derived all the equations here for you that, you know, uh, pretty much uh, uh, assess, you know, the uh, resonance levels of beryllium and carbon and um, uh, hydrogen and and uh, and uh, and helium, and uh, just wanted to let you know that, uh, uh, you know, the odds are, you know, some huge number, and um, you know, uh, I think at that point, Hoyle." abdicated uh, atheism. Uh, mm. you know, he just, uh, after studying the matter for about a year, 
he came out and uh, wrote, you know, in uh, the Caltech Journal um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, this uh, kind of confession. He said, I don't think that there are any blind forces worth speaking about. It, it seems to me that there must be some super calculating super intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this conclusion to be beyond uh, the shadow of a doubt. Uh, he later went on with a very vivid description to say, oh, the odds of having an abundance of carbon in our universe by pure chance are about the same as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard, assembling a Boeing 747 ready for flight. So uh, <laughs> clearly um, a man who has, uh, you know, not only changed his mind, but, you know, a very outspoken atheism uh, just turned on a dime and, and became uh, basically an outspoken theist. And, um, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the whole, you know, the, the relevance of the Big Bang and all of this has been, you know, uh, very, very important. And, um, you know, a, a while back, uh, uh, Dr. Robert Jastrow, who was the founding director of, um, you know, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, basically, he, he, you know, he, he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And I think, you know, he was personally affected, no question. Uh, by you know the uh, the strength of the data at that time, and he he you know this is a paraphrase of what he wrote in his book uh, toward the end. There, he said you know that uh, scientists have unshackled themselves from the domain of superstition and have begun to and began to climb the uh, the cliffs of. Uh, of scientific knowledge, arming themselves with a methodology of uh, empirical and critical mathematical uh, theories, and as they finally assembled and uh, you know uh, you know uh, came to the, the final precipice of the mountain um, in their uh, in their scaling, they pulled themselves over and found a band of theologians there awaiting them for centuries. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, when you look at, you know, this, this all goes back to 1978 or so. Um, but then, you know, came a variety of responses. Um, one of them was called the, uh, the multiverse, um, you know, which is like a big, huge um, mega uh, universe that is kind of coughing out little bubble universes. Trillions and trillions and trillions of bubble universes, one of which is our own. So the multiverse became very, very popular. And then after the multiverse, um, you know, you have other uh, ones that, you know, you know, got even more uh, crazy. You know, you had uh, cyclic universes in the higher dimensional space of string theory. Um, you had nucleating um, multiverses in the higher dimensional space of string theory. And, you know, so 11 dimensions kind of generating, uh, you know, these things. And so it looked for a while there that, well, maybe our Big Bang wasn't the beginning of the universe or certainly wasn't the beginning of physical reality. It may have been the beginning of our universe, but our universe is just one out of a you know gazillion 
bubble universes. So this uh, kind of came into play for quite a long time. And then eventually the fine tuning coincidences were so difficult to explain that um, people began to postulate what was called um, uh, uh, infinite multiverses with eternal inflation. So they had no beginning and they had an infinite number of bubble universes so that anything was uh, explicable right in these uh, in this infinite multiverse. Well, it looked like, you know, that was the end of postulating theism on the basis of science for quite some time until um, the whole theory of Boltzmann brains and brief brains began come out and you go, what's a Boltzmann brain? Well, mm-hmm. uh, a Boltzmann brain, it would be a, a brain that <clears throat> simply fluctuates into existence in a thermal vacuum um, by pure chance. And um, and the odds of that happening, uh, by the way, so you and I would be Boltzmann brains, right? That fluctuated <laughs> in existence. But we have a memory of ourselves as being carbon-based realities in a very nice um, you know, elegant universe. And the reason the Boltzmann brain theory became very devastating to the infinite multiverse was if you did have an infinite multiverse, you'd have a virtual infinity of Boltzmann brains for every universe like ours, because our universe is so against the odds, right? So, I mean, just the low entropy of our universe, the odds of this happening by pure chance are 10 raised to the 10 raised again to the 123 to one, which is such a huge number. It represents the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys in a single try. Mm. Hardly going to happen by pure chance. Mm. So that means, well, Lizzo, you and I are Boltzmann brain. I mean, uh, and everybody else around us are Boltzmann brains. And this universe is merely an illusion of our highly coordinated Boltzmann brains. And that's all there is to that. So, of course, nobody is willing to call themselves a Boltzmann brain. So, of course, the infinite multiverse suddenly became very, very suspect indeed. And Mm. then finally, of all the people right, uh, uh, who uh, actually came to the fore, Stephen Hawking, right, for a long time, you know, uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, open to these kinds of um, possibilities of anything can happen in a multiverse, especially a multiverse in, uh, in uh, string theory, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, Hawking, in his final uh, journal paper in 2018, uh, along with his partner, uh, Thomas Hertog. By the way, both of them are very well-known physicists. Um, and uh, Hawking and Hertog uh, showed that you could, no infinite multiverse, which would have to be a fractal multiverse, could generate a universe like ours. And he went on to further show that um, any uh, multiverse from which our universe could have come would have had to have first of all, had a beginning. So that multiverse itself would have had to have had a beginning. You couldn't have eternal inflation uh, generating it. And the second thing is that not only would you have to have a finite number of bubble universes, it would have to be a very small number of bubble universes, most of which would be like 
our universe. Well, you can imagine once Stephen Hawking publishes a paper like that, kablamo. So, I mean, you combine that with the work of Thomas Banks, you combine that with the work of, um, you know, Boltzmann Brains and Brief Brains, Donald Page, you combine that now with Hawking and with um, uh, Hertog, and the next thing you know is in, an infinite multiverse is a, an exceedingly, exceedingly unlikely possibility. So we're right back to where we were before. Even if you had a multiverse, it'd have to be finite in time. It'd have to have a beginning. And it would actually have to have a small number of bubble universes, which could not possibly explain 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1, right? The, the monkey typing Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys in a single try. So um, uh, where, where are we now? We still need an intelligent guy. Now, has this affected uh, physicists themselves? And has this affected scientists themselves? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of new scientific evidence out there. A lot of it is detailed, uh, in, you know, by Francis Collins, um, who is, uh, as you know, probably the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, head of the Genome Project uh, and is no... Um, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, DNA sequencing, right, of the, the entire genome. Um, so the Human Genome Project, and uh, he is a very well-known uh, Christian and very, you know, uh, much, you know, talks about his faith from the vantage point of DNA. Now you've got a bunch of physicists that are talking about, um, you know, faith being substantiated by cosmological evidence uh, in physics. And now you have these near-death experiences uh, and you have very good peer-reviewed medical studies of near-death experiences that shows the strong likelihood of our consciousness surviving bodily death in the form of transphysical form that we might call a soul. So all these things are just, you know, heading right into, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, into a, um, uh, uh, a you know, a, um, uh, a sequence um, and, uh, you know, a collective uh, set of data. And now if you look at, um, you know, the percentage of scientists, this is comes from a Pew survey, um, a recent Pew survey of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, if you look at that survey, uh, you will see that um, uh, 51% of scientists overall are theists. They are believers in God or believers in a higher supreme power. And um, only 41% are either agnostics or atheists. So about 21% agnostic and 20% atheists. Well, 51% theist, 20% atheist, hardly, um, you know, can you, you, you know, you can't really say <coughs> at this juncture that scientists are truly atheists. They're not. <laughs> They're decidedly um, theists. But here's the much more interesting statistic that, um, that uh, um, of that uh, number, the young scientists who are 40 and under, According to the same Pew survey, 66% of them are um, theists, and 31% are either agnostic 
or atheists, so about 15, 16%, 15%, somewhere in that area, respectively, for agnostics and atheists. So now you're dealing, right, among the young scientists with a 66% supermajority are theists. Wow. They are believers. And only um, about 15% are atheists. <laughs> so now you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute here. Um, why did that happen? The principal reason is because there is a super increase in scientific evidence for God. Like I said, these near-death experiences, the new um, stuff in physics, the fine-tuning coincidences, and some of these younger uh, physicists like Luke Barnes, they're, they're just coming out unabashedly. And talking about their faith, right? They, you know, they, he, he just finished writing a book called Fortunate Universe and, and really, um, uh, you know, uh, just put a hole right in the entire critique of fine-tuning uh, coincidences. There was a book by Victor Stenger called uh, The Fallacy of Fine-Tuning, um, you know, and this guy, Luke Barnes, basically wrote a paper, a very lengthy paper, in the uh, Australian uh, Academy of Sciences uh, journal and basically saying, you know, the fallacy of the fallacy of fine-tuning. So uh, he shows, uh, you know, about uh, 13 major fallacies in Victor Stenger's work to make <coughs> fine-tuning a fallacy. So uh, the, the, uh, the new scientists are <clears throat> pretty much out there. And by the way, if you're looking at doctors and physicians, about 76% of uh, doctors are not only believers in God, they're religious practitioners. Two-thirds of them, of that um, of that 76% are religious practitioners. And, uh, you know, um, of that, um, you know, the 76%, um, uh, well, 73% of doctors actually believe in miracles, past and present. So in their own um, medical practice, 73% of doctors are obviously seeing something that they just cannot chalk up to natural causes that cannot be scientifically <clears throat> explained. So you put all of it together <clears throat> and you can be sure that there is a real uh, change out there in the, in the uh, atmosphere. Scientists, doctors, and engineers are becoming now, uh, and especially the younger ones, are becoming, you know, the primary trendsetters um, for, uh, for theism so, uh, and uh, even religious practice uh, in the academic community. Boy, that is so exciting. We are going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and then we will be right back with Father Robert Spitzer. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Walter Crawford. And I'm Maureen Whitman. We are the co-founders of homeschoolconnections.com and proud sponsors of the Homeschooling Saints podcast. Which is here to help you homeschool more joyfully, more easily, and more effectively. We want to thank you for listening. And we invite you to check out our courses at homeschoolconnections.com. And now back to our program. Okay, we are back with Father Robert Spitzer. Okay, so it's so exciting to hear that younger scientists coming up 
are on the whole really acknowledging there has to be a divine creator. There's some kind of intelligence behind all of this. So is this kind of emerging awareness changing the way we do well, science? Well, it's changing several things, yes. First of all, scientism is now on the decline. And, you know, for a while there, for, you know, even just 20 years ago, uh, scientism was still a sort of a popular thought. And scientism basically means that um, everything that is a truth must be explicable or at least falsifiable scientifically. Otherwise, it is suspect as truth. Now, you know, the problem with scientism, you know, for all philosophers, right, is, well, that's a self-refuting proposition. Because if you say all truth must be scientifically verifiable or falsifiable, the minute you put that all in there, that's a universal. Whereas every scientific fact has to be observable, which means it has to be in a particular place and time. You can mm -hmm. never have a universal and all proposition in science. So the very uh, proclamation of scientism all truth must be scientifically verifiable or falsifiable, that proposition cannot be scientifically verified or falsified. So oh. according to that proposition, it refutes itself. I love so, it. And, and so, of course, that's a problem. But now, I think today, even young, like I said, there's a super majority of young scientists who really believe that uh, scientism is just not going to work because the supermajority of scientists of young scientists are believers in God. So 66% are believers in God um, or a higher uh, supreme higher power. Now, if that's the case and you, um, you, you hold that, of course, scientism is, is out the window to begin with, with all those young scientists. And if scientism goes out the window, materialism goes out the window too. So the idea of trying to reduce everything uh, to a merely materialistic explanation, to a merely physical explanation. Now, materialism in physics has been out you know, the door for quite some time. Quantum physics has always been a step beyond certainly um, you know, what we call classical physics, classical physical materialism. So already, you know, there's implications that there has to be something mentative uh, out there, um, you know, besides, you know, the material, uh, besides, uh, you know, classical physical processes. So we've known that for quite a while. But now, as I said, uh, the, the real genie is out of the bottle, and, um, you know, now it's going to be hard to get that genie back in. And, you know, the, the materialism bottle and the scientism bottle is pretty much over. So that's been a, you know, a, a real first hit um, to, uh, you know, two aberrant views of science where, you know, science is, is you know, was pushed to the extreme of scientism or pushed to the extreme of what we call physical reductionism or materialism. So those two movements are pretty much gone. And uh, we don't hear, you know, you, of course, there's always some people who want to go back to them. But among the young scientists, that's a very rare uh, kind of thing. Some of the old cadres still go back 
uh, to their materialism, but most do not in the young group. The, the second thing that's kind of interesting is that now I think a lot of young scientists also will admit that science can't possibly talk about things like conscience, good, moral p- propositions. I, I certainly can't talk about spiritual um, you know, truths or even transcendent truths because uh, they're beyond science, right? That God is beyond science. And most be, most scientists will admit that because uh, after all, you know, science has to be grounded in observation and observations must be grounded in this in this universe, which is what we call the observable universe. And if that's the case, then all scientific evidence has to come from within the universe. Well, God, by definition, is outside the universe, beyond the universe. And so how can you disprove God, right, who's outside the universe, with evidence that's used only from within our universe? Well, that's just like trying uh, to disprove, um, you know, the, the you know, the, the cartoon characters are assembling all the data in the cartoon to disprove the cartoonist. Won't work. So, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, impossible to do. Uh, all that being said, then, a, a lot of scientists are saying, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not going to try and describe love in a merely scientific, scientific physical process way. Uh, there's lots of philosophers and scientists who are already saying you know, evolution alone cannot explain, um, you know, you know the, uh, uh, the emergence of human beings. There's just not nearly, nearly enough time uh, to do that. And um, so, you know, even, um, you know, people who are ostensibly, uh, you know, atheistic, like um, uh, Thomas Nagel, right, who uh, basically says, look, uh, you know, I'd like to be an agnostic or an atheist, but I can tell you this right now. Uh, Materialistic, neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory is almost certainly wrong. That's, you know, that's the name of his book, right? (laughs) And uh, when you have Nagel even saying that and just saying you're going to need something more than physical processes. You're going to need something more than emergent probabilities in, an, in a merely materialistic evolutionary schema. You're going to need something more. Well, what? Well, something mind-like. Well, what's that? Well, something mind-like. Of course, nobody wants to say maybe transcendent mind-like, maybe God, right? You know, <laughs> if you're an atheist, you don't want to admit to that right off the bat. But let me tell you this right now. If most scientists are um, theists, which they are, and most young scientists, supermajority of them, are, are theistic believers in God, which they are, then for all intents and purposes, um, most scientists are not merely, um, uh, you know, neo-Darwinian materialistic evolutionists. They are evolutionists who make some room for some transcendent guiding intelligent principle. Now, um, so you, if you kind of call the various, the spectrum of, of uh, uh, atheists and so forth, I mean, of, uh, of theistic scientists, um, you know, you have some who are 
maybe what are called nomogenesis uh, fans and some of them that are uh, orthogenesis fans and so forth. Like you take Francis Collins, right? That was the head of the genome project. Uh, he's a person, he certainly believes in God and he certainly believes in evolution all at the same time, but he is uh, basically nomogenesis, right? He believes that God, this intelligent designer, front-loaded into the Big Bang all of the um, uh, classical and, you know, uh, quantum mechanical uh, dimensions of um, not only physics, but also chemistry and biology. So um, that would be a scientist, for example, who who is nomogenesis. Orthogenesis means that God is like a final cause. That means that God is like, a, you know, like an omega point that is sort of drawing all of creation. So he's given order to creation, uh, you know, at the beginning there, but um, he's drawing it to completion as a final cause and allowing emergent probability to have its way. But at the end of the day, he is ordering it uh, toward an evolutionary uh, um, gain uh, over an um, anthropic gain, uh, you know, an entropic gain, uh, which it would be a downward, uh, you know, disorderly uh, trend. So entropy versus evolution, right? Uh, God is making evolution, which is really against the odds, sort of win on a continuous basis. A lot of guys who are orthogenesis uh, uh, people, um, of course, one of the famous Catholics was a Jesuit by the name of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, who was uh, definitely uh, postulated a final cause like an omega point, you know, which um, was guiding the evolutionary process in this continuously, um, you know, uh, upward ascending evolutionary way. Then you have people who are both. Uh, Nomo and orthogenesis people. Uh, that would be, for example, Michael Polanyi, a uh, very world famous chemist, uh, but also a philosopher uh, who basically believes that, yes, God front loaded everything uh, there in the universe, including the laws of biology and the laws of chemistry, which would govern uh, the laws of physics in a like an assembly program. Uh, would guide it. And so a guy like Polanyi uh, would be both nomo and orthogenesis, a uh, brilliant guy. Uh, you know, he wrote, uh, you know, the um, his, this famous, famous article called The Irreducibility of Life. Uh, if you, you know, it's a very short article, uh, but it really had a huge influence on, I think, young scientists. So you can see, you know, that that's probably the majority of scientists for sure are, uh, you know, uh, what I would call, um, you know, believers in God who have, you know, also believe in evolution, but they put the two together in one of those three major schools of thought, uh, generally. Um, there are some people who still believe in, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that God not only front-loaded it, but, you know, he created all species at once, but most People do not believe that God created all species at the beginning, you know, of, of life on Earth. That would be for, you know, that, that would be like 3.9 billion years ago would be when life, uh, you know, like we, we call it mark microorganisms. Um, these would be um, 
in the order of protozoa or flagella or something of that nature, or perhaps even simpler um, single-celled organisms. Uh, they probably started emerging about 3.9 billion years ago on Earth, Earth being 4.6 billion years old. So, I mean, if you you know, take all this seriously, uh, you can see that scientists are taking God very seriously. Of course, they take evolution seriously, but Catholics are allowed to believe in evolution. And, oh, you know, they have been since the time of Pope Pius XII, uh, who wrote Humani Generis, I believe it was 1951. Uh, he wrote that encyclical, which gave Catholics a huge degree of latitude to believe in evolution in the Bible. Um, and, uh, you know, so long as it was scientific and so long as Catholics did not deny the reality of a transcendent soul that was uniquely made for each human being by God, so long as you affirm that. And that's not a hard thing to affirm anymore. I mean, uh, it's a very easy thing to affirm. So, um, uh, because there's so much evidence, not only, as I said, from near-death experiences, but other things. You put all these things together, and young scientists are beginning to, you know, as you can see, they they are beginning to get a very good uh, uh, sense and feel of how the you know, transcendent and the imminent, the physics and the transphysical, uh, you know, our metaphysical come together, um, you know, in this beautiful design universe. It's not just that the universe uh, proclaims the glory of God, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, but the scientific explanation of the universe and heavens proclaims the glory of God. And so, um, uh, so yes, that that's beginning to emerge. And, you know, and is that really strange in science? Yes, is you know, it's a whole new way of looking at science that's open in many ways. Uh, to transcendent evolutionary processes, that that's you know uh, coming out more and more today. Um, uh, was certainly less so in the past, but let's face it: the majority of famous physicists uh, have been uh, theists. I mean, you know, James Clerk Maxwell, you know, in electrodynamics and electrical. Uh, field theory originally, I mean, Albert Einstein, um, you know, Max Planck, who is the founder of quantum theory, uh, you know, when you combine Einstein's relativity with Planck's quantum theory, and then Werner Heisenberg, clearly the indeterminacy theory, the blending uh, indeterminately of quantum and, and uh, general relativistic uh, theories and, and field equations. So you put all those things together. Werner Heisenberg was clearly a theist as well. You know, Kurt Gettle was clearly a theist. I'm Sir Arthur Eddington, another one of the big uh, areas of, uh, of stellar nucleosynthesis, uh, one of the founders there. Um, Sir Arthur Eddington, in his book, The, the Nature of the Physical World, uh, basically winds up uh, a chapter called um, A Defense of Mysticism with this quote. I mean, this is one of the top-notch physicists in the world. He says, you know, there are things uh, in this universe untrammeled uh, by the domain of physics, not only the things of spirit and art, but even science itself. Science can scarcely challenge, um, you know, the warrant uh, for something beyond itself, for the very anticipation of uh, scientific answers 
and the very intelligibility of uh, the universe in terms of mathematics, uh, all of these things are really beyond uh, the domain of physics itself. And then he goes on to say that um, the light beckons ahead and the purpose surging within our nature responds. So uh, again, that's clearly a very theistic, uh, almost mystical uh, respond and interpretation of science. And so you, you look at, you know, this, you know, even Galileo Galilei, I mean, of course he was, you know, right in the middle of the whole controversy, but unquestionably a, a theist. Sir Isaac Newton, the founder of classical physics, spent most of his life uh, trying to do theology uh, as well as physics. So, you know, this idea you know, that, that, you know, science and faith are separate. I mean, this is, you know, in the, in the dreams, I guess, of, of Dawkins or somebody like that, but it's not in the real world. And by the way, even Dawkins himself has recently said, well, I'm not so much of an atheist. I'm an agnostic who leans in the direction of atheism. Well, you know, I mean, why is he saying that? Because the evidence is shifting ground as he's standing on it. And so it's all of these things uh, that are, you know, really coming together um, that, uh, yeah, they make for a very different scientific environment. Now, you know, again, ethics is basically, you know, you can try and derive some ethical principles from science, but when you move from you know, uh, the universe or ecology as a science and you move, you should respect the earth and respect, you know, nature, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to, you know, something that's an ethical statement like that, you know, that's beyond science. It really is. You're, you're going to have to turn to your conscience. You're going to have to turn to a whole other domain called moral theory. Yes, there are intersections between science and morals, but you can't derive morals from science. You just can't do it. Morals are on a different plane. Morals are present to us in our conscience. Morals are present to us through divine revelation, which comes to it. And, you know, there's a whole the science of theology of, of divine revelation, um, and, you know, where God has certainly not been absent, uh, but reveals himself. And let's face facts. If 73% of the medical community believes in miracles past and present, and much of that belief is grounded in the fact that they've experienced something like a miracle, even in their own practice, something which is scientifically inexplicable, there's got to be openness. Um, you know, to ethics, openness to a morality beyond mere physicalism and mere, you know, um, uh, materialism uh, that is coming out. And that, yes, it is changing. So the, uh, I think there, again, in the scientific community, there's not just more openness to God, but more openness to a God who reveals himself. And in that revelation, of course, moral theology. So uh, that's, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, dimension of it. All right. Father, we just have a couple of minutes to wrap up here. I want to mention to everybody, Sophia Institute has fathers 
the Catholic Faith and Science. It is a faculty manual, but it has lesson plans for regular teachers that can absolutely be adapted for your homeschool. In 2023 and 2024, our Sunday visitors coming out with various study Bibles that have that, that intersection of faith and science. So be looking for those. And please do check out the Magis Center and look at, uh, maybe you can get some of these from the library, but order them from the Magis Center if you'd like to own them and pass them around your homeschool. Um, there are DVDs and all sorts of resources, and I believe streaming service as well, right, Father, at the Magis Center? So much good stuff. CredibleCatholic.com. And just click on the seven essential modules. It's all free. Show that to your uh, your uh, your uh, teenagers, and I'll tell you, it will change their faith. And when they go to college, they will be uh, you'll give them an a, you know and uh, you know a, a shot, you know, a vaccine against <laughs> uh, you know uh, you know the atheism that they're going to encounter mostly in the humanities, not in the sciences, uh, certainly not in engineering, but mostly in the humanities. Wow, wow. Okay, Father, just as a wrap up, what else is kind of out there in your that you'd like to just share with us before we go? What thought would you like to leave us with? Well, I, you know, that Sophia Institute, you know, course, it's really a senior year uh, course, but it has an, a student textbook too that is just worth buying. I mean, you could go to Sophia Institute, you know, just click on the book there. Uh, yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes too, Father. And that, that book, I think, is just worth buying and letting. It, it's, you know, written for a high school audience and especially a homeschool uh, audience, um, you know, students. They can read that book. And I think it would be really eye-opening and helping them to defend their faith, especially when they get outside of the parental uh, structures and maybe under the influence of some secular, um, you know, uh, programs and, you know, in a university, even especially a Catholic, not a Catholic, but a, a public university, which which might have a, a great deal of pressure, you know, to, you know, bend their way toward deconstruction or something of that nature. Mm. Well, it has just been a joy having you with us, Father. I, I wish we could have done like a 10-part series. This is so rich. But at least now, um, if people are not already aware of the Magis Center, um, they are now. And I'd love to just have more and more homeschoolers availing themselves of your resources. Thank you for all that you do to just use science and theology and philosophy and everything that's available to us to just show how great our God truly is and how really undeniably present he is in his creation. It's so such a beautiful mission, Father. It's an honor. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for being with us. I'll have as many of those resources as I can in the show notes. And feel free to write to me, Lisa, at wonderfullymade139.com if you have any further questions about the resources in this episode. Don't want you to have to go crazy taking notes. Uh, but everyone, God bless you and have a beautiful day. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.